Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I don't like to wait, and I think I'm not alone, at least not according to Alex Jones writing in a New York Times piece now some years ago. Jones was writing about a situation at a Houston airport. The problem was they were getting an increasing number of complaints from passengers saying, it takes too long to wait on our luggage. We go to baggage claim, and there we stand, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. Is there no way you can speed it up? So the Houston airport executives took it under advisement and began to talk about what they could do, and they ultimately decided we're going to hire more baggage handlers, and so they did. And when they hired more baggage handlers, it, it actually sped up some. When they timed it then, they were at about eight minutes, eight minutes that people would have from leaving the plane to when they would actually receive their luggage, which was well within industry standards. The problem was the complaints continued, almost unabated. We're having to wait too long. Takes too long. Anybody who has traveled can understand that experience. You get off the flight, walk down to the baggage claim, and then you stand as a community there waiting, just waiting. You wait until finally that conveyor belt lurches and jerks to life, and then everybody's focus goes to that one three-foot-by-three-foot opening. Now, they've hung rubber slats down just to increase the tension. But you stand there, and you look. Everybody's focused in on it. Is it my back? Is it my back? Oh, 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 no, that's not. Is it my back? And I think, why are we doing this? Why is it as though everything rides on how quickly my bag comes out? Well, it's because we don't like to wait. And so the Houston area executives, after realizing hiring more baggage handlers is not going to fix the problem, looked at it more carefully. And then they made an interesting discovery. They discovered that when passengers deplaned, they deplaned right there near the baggage area, it took them about one minute to walk from their gate to the baggage claim, where they then spent seven minutes waiting. And so, ingenious as they were, they decided, we're just going to park the planes further away. And so they started docking the planes further away to the point where passengers were walking seven minutes and waiting one. And the complaints went to almost zero. (laughs) People just stopped complaining. They didn't have to wait anymore. Well, Richard Larson, a researcher at UC Davis here in California, is a leading expert, in fact, maybe the world's leading expert on, if you can believe this, on lines. Lines. You know, like Disneyland lines and post office lines and, heaven help us, DMV lines. He's a leading expert on lines. And he said, here's the key issue in lines and in waiting, like they were waiting at the Houston airport. It's whether your time is occupied or unoccupied. That's what matters. 
So if you have occupied time, like walking from the gate to the baggage claim, you're usually good with that. If you have unoccupied time, standing there watching an inert baggage carousel just waiting, that's when trouble begins. In fact, Larson goes on to say that people who have unoccupied waiting time overestimate the amount of time they've waited by 36%. 36%. Says something about what happens in your marriage, doesn't it? <laughs> So they just increased the amount of time that passengers walked. Fixed the problem. Now, they weren't the first to do something like this. There were others who did something like this many years before that. It was in the post-World War II economic boom in this country when they began to build more and more high-rise buildings. As they built more high-rise buildings, they ran into a problem with people waiting that they hadn't fully expected. That was, they discovered people were becoming increasingly unhappy with waiting on the elevator. Just waiting. And so ingenious as they were, they fixed it. They just hung mirrors by the elevator. <laughs> they knew what you would do. I saw you doing that, checking yourself out, looking to see, you know. And now people were occupied. And the complaints went away. Supermarket executives have discovered the exact same thing. And so right up where it is that you have to stand and wait, what have they put there? All the candy that you never would have bought otherwise, all of the knickknacks that you never would have bought for your children otherwise. And can you believe it? You say, I bought a, a, a rag. I bought, I bought one of those magazines, National Enquirer, took it home and read it. I would never have bought that. But I was waiting. Because when we wait, we need to occupy our time. In fact, the supermarket industry earns $5.5 billion a year off of people who buy while they're waiting. We don't like to wait. Waiting is a challenge. Waiting is a problem. We're used to getting things quickly. In fact, the Russian comet Yakov Smirnov, when he came to this country some years ago, he said, this is an amazing country. He said, I walked into the grocery store. It was my favorite place to go. I would walk in, and I would see there, said, powdered milk. Just buy it and add water, and you have milk. Powdered orange juice. Buy it, and you add water, you have orange juice. He said, and then I looked, and there was baby powder. And I said, what a country. Can you imagine? <laughs> we don't like to wait. It's not a fun experience. And so we want to somehow occupy ourselves, occupy our time. Well, it's right there with that experience of having to wait and not enjoying it that we join a family today. The family of Isaac and Rebekah, the family of Jacob and Esau. They're waiting. Now, we're going to read a scene from their story, and we're going to read the whole scene. It's going to take us a few moments to read it. So I want to clue you into a few things before we read it, a few things to watch for, a few pieces of the puzzle, so that when we put the puzzle together by reading the entire story, you will feel its true and deep pathos. So several things to watch for. First of all, 
Notice the fact that the, that the scene both begins and ends with Esau's marriages. First of all, he marries some women of the land, some Canaanite women, doesn't please his parents. And then the scene ends with him marrying yet again, this time a daughter of Abraham in the attempt to please his parents. So pay attention to that. Take note of the fact that the entire episode is woven through and through with parental favoritism. Favoritism. It's everywhere in the passage. In fact, Isaac will refer to his favored son Esau at least nine times as my son. The writer will refer to Esau being Isaac's son three more times. Rachel will refer to her favorite son, Jacob, three times as my son. And the writer will refer to him in the same way another time. Maybe most interesting of all is that conspicuous by its absence is this. Neither parent ever refers to either son by saying, our son. It's my son and my son. Parental favoritism. Watch for that. And then pay attention to Rebecca, the mother. Rebecca is scheming behind the scenes. She is planning. She's working things out. She's pulling the puppet strings, making sure that things go in the direction she believes they should, and she believes God told her they should go. She will not be stopped. In fact, even her own favorite son, Jacob, says, Mom, Mom, I don't think we should, should do what I tell you. Just do it. So pay attention to that. And then watch Isaac, the father. Isaac is blind in more ways than one in this scene. And so he's suspicious. He's not sure this is his son. You'll see it come out time and again. Is it you, my son? Is that really you, my son? Come closer so I can feel you. Come closer so I can smell you. He's suspicious to the point of being paranoid. Watch for that. And then watch for the blessing. This passage is truly about the blessing, the parental blessing, the fatherly blessing. And it is about the blessing. 22 times the Hebrew word barak, which we pronounce, translate blessing, appears in this passage. Who is going to get the blessing that's woven throughout the passage? And then one last item. This is a deeply emotional passage. Deeply emotional. For those who are living it, it is deep pathos. You'll notice it, for example, when we read You'll see it comes to that point in time where Isaac realizes he's been duped. And it says he trembled violently. We'll come to that moment in time when Esau realizes he's been outmaneuvered by Jacob. And it says he utters a loud and bitter cry. Profound feeling. Now I want to underline just how profound the feeling is by the words of Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar, who writing about this passage and those two instances with the father and the son says this. The verb harad, translated tremble, 
expressed intense fear and alarm by itself. But here it is supplemented by the superlative adjective very great. In other words, his trembling was very great. Hebrew can hardly express Isaac's panic more graphically. As to Esau's reaction, once again, the Hebrew is remarkable for using a strong verb, scream, and the superlative adjective right along with it. Deep feeling. Now the question's obvious. Why do they feel that so deeply? What is it that's going on in their hearts and lives? Well, the blessing is at stake. Even in our modern world, children, even adult children, want the parental blessing. They want that experience of knowing that mom and dad view them with favor, with high regard. They want to be able to do something and have mom and dad say to them, you did that so well, I'm proud of you. Even in the modern world, we desire the parental blessing, so much so that some psychologists argue that if we don't get that blessing, we can actually go on a lifelong, misguided, and unhealthy search to get the blessing from somewhere. So even in the modern world, it's an emotional topic. But in the world of Jacob and Esau, it was even more so. Listen to these words from Old Testament scholar John Hartley, who writes this. Such blessings were crucial, for they guided the destiny of ancient tribes. This was even more true for the patriarchs as heirs of the great Abrahamic promises. They believed that God empowered the blessing by directing nature to produce bountifully and by making those who were blessed strong and able to withstand any foe. The blessing thus bonded together the patriarchs in God. It also instilled confidence, encouraging the one blessed to walk with God as his forefathers had done before him. The son who received the Abrahamic blessing became the next leader. In other words, to receive the blessing was to, in a sense, have your future predicted positively. It was to be told that God would bless bountifully in all that you did. It was to bind you more deeply and closely to God. It was to make you the next leader of the clan. It was to say, when the story is told, when the genealogy is read, your name will be right there. So it was a deeply emotional experience to receive it. And to lose it was a profound pain. Utter tragedy. So those are the puzzle pieces. Got them laid out on the table in front of us. Now we're going to read the story. We're going to read it as the puzzle comes together. Now, as I warned you, it's going to be a bit of a read because we're going to read the whole scene. But hang with me and enter into the pathos of this ancient family. Genesis 26, verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Bazemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. 
Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I, might, that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. This was one hairy dude. <laughs> then she That wasn't in the text, by the way. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success. Wow, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing." Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered. Your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, 
He burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I've made him lord over you and have made all of his relatives his servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to, your, to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry, angry with you and forgets, curious, what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you have become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he had commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the daughter of Nebaioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Wow. That's a mouthful. Full of pathos. Full of pain full of conniving and scheming. Welcome to an evening on Netflix. And yet, this is Genesis. So what are we to make of it? What application can that possibly have? A family from several thousand years ago, a world away to us in 21st century Southern California. What applications can we draw? Well, we might draw, suppose we could draw an application to the way that families pass realities along intergenerationally. 
fact, all you have to do is read this family's whole story in the book of Genesis, and you will see that certain issues, such as parental privilege, continue to happen in one generation after another. They just keep passing it on down. We could pay attention to that. Because it is true today that what I live today, my kids will live tomorrow, and my grandkids will live the next day. And we pay attention to that to make sure that the choices we make today are healthy and sound. That we become, in the words of the late Christian psychologist Dennis Guernsey, transitional people. Guernsey says a transitional person is a person who looks at the past in his or her family's life and says, that dysfunction, that stops here. I'm not passing that on to the others. Transitional people. We look at that. Or we consider it in the words of Philip Yancey, the writer, who says, I have a friend whose marriage has gone through rough times. One night, George passed a breaking point and emotionally exploded. He pounded the table and floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I've had it. I won't go on. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Several months later, my friend woke up in the middle of the night and heard strange sounds coming from the room where his young son slept. He went down the hall, stood outside his son's door, and shivers ran through his flesh. In a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection the climactic argument between his mother and father. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. George realized that in some awful way he had just passed on his pain and anger and unforgiveness to the next generation. Apart from forgiveness, the monstrous past may awake at any time from hibernation and devour the present and even the future. So I suppose that's one application we could make. Pay attention to what's happening generationally in your generation. Or we could make another application. I suppose we could talk about the blessing. The blessing that each of us wants from our parents. It seems to be a part of the makeup of being human, that desire to know that our parents view us with regard, with pride, with favor, with love. To know that. It's human to want that. However, sometimes that moves from want to need. I need that. I have to have that. And I'll do anything I can to get that. It doesn't matter how unhealthy it may be. Understand to move from want to need is to move from a legitimate human desire into the area of addictive domain. If what your parent wants from you is unhealthy, you're in trouble. Because as long as you require their blessing, you are a slave to their expectations. It's worth thinking about those things, asking about those things. After all, even with our parents, healthy boundaries are in order. The most boundary-setting word of all 
is the simple word, no. To be able to speak that to mom and dad is an evidence of emotional maturity. Now be careful. If you yell it at mom and dad, you've still got work to do. If you whisper it so that they can hardly hear it, you've still got work to do. But if you can speak it with clarity and with grace, there's something good in that. It's worth paying attention to that. If you're a young adult here this morning, it's worth taking note of that. If you're a parent here this morning, it's worth listening. I've learned over the years of having the wonderful, the inestimable privilege of working with students and church members in the counseling office that those issues of not being able to deal in healthy ways with mom and dad are not the domain only of teenagers and 20-somethings. I've seen people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s still unable to say no because they crave, they need that favor. That's written all over this chapter. It might be worth paying attention to. Or we might even apply this in the domain of parental favorites. I mean, that's all through this chapter as well. Do parents treat their children equally? I grew up in a home where my mom was exceedingly careful about that. I can still remember her being anxious and worried and counting up and trying to make sure that she had spent exactly the same amount on the gift for each of us four children for Christmas. I want to make sure, almost down to the dollar and penny, I want to make sure I've spent exactly the same. I just wanted to tell her, Mom, don't stress. The other three know I'm your favorite. Just don't, don't stress. <laughs> My sister Lindy's watching. I'm going to hear it. <laughs> but it's not just that good parents are concerned to treat all their kids equally. It's even borne out by research. Catherine Conger, family sociologist and researcher at University of California at Davis, in one of her research projects says that her subjects reported in what she found from her subjects, 70% of the parents said, I have a favorite. And some of those who say, I have a favorite, go on to show it. If you want to know what happens, just read this chapter. The research also bears out that the results are deep and negative and long-lasting. So how do we apply this story? You may pay attention to that as well. But the truth is, even though all of those are legitimate realities, themes that grow out of the story, I would argue they are not the main point of the story. Rather, I would argue that the main point of the story is a family that can't wait. People that cannot wait. They're standing in the baggage claim of life. They're unoccupied. They're eager. They're anxious. And they have to act even when they need to be waiting. It's the story of a mother and her favored son 
where the mother says, I'm going to get you what God said is coming to you, and I'm going to brook no obstacle. I'll overcome anything I have to in order to get you what I desire rather than waiting. It's the story of a father and his favorite son trying to make sure that his son gets it all, regardless of what the divine word was in the past. The divine word was, I'm doing something in this family in Genesis that's going to turn the social order on its head, upside down. They didn't pay attention to that. Father's making sure his favorite son... You want to know just how deeply? Somebody stopped me after first service and said, Notice that when Esau comes back and says, Haven't you saved anything for me? Isaac says, I gave it all. I held nothing back because I thought it was you. Make sure that you got everything. And so both are pushing, pushing, pushing. We don't have time to wait. We've got to make sure these kids turn out the way we want them to. No time to wait on God. And that makes sense. I don't enjoy waiting. And I dare say you don't enjoy waiting either. Why should we? Seems like everything in our culture says you don't have to wait. You can have everything you want right now. Psychologist named Kim Hall says, can you believe it? She says, we live in a country where you can plant in your front yard in one day a tree 50 feet tall. Who wants to talk about waiting on God? Not in that context. Of course not. We can have it right now. Or even consider these words. They've, they've somewhat haunted me over the last several years by Richard Hendricks, who says, Second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us ever encounter. Waiting. Waiting on God. You find that in places like the Psalms, where the psalmist will say it again and again, wait, I say, wait, I say, wait, I say on the Lord. And here we have a family that says, I got no time for that. Got unoccupied time here. I got to make sure this comes out the way I believe it has to. So maybe, just maybe, the best application of this story is for families, for parents. I know what it's like. I know those struggles deeply and well. We know what's best for them. This is what they need to do. And yet if Isaac and Rebekah say anything, they say there comes a time when it is time to wait on the work of God in your child's life. There comes a time when it's time to back off, when it's time not to push, when it's time to let them grow, when it's time to allow them to fail. The truth is, God loves them more than you ever could. The cross of Jesus at Calvary stands as an eternal witness to that reality, to the lengths to which He will go to win your child. 
to himself, to walk with him, with her. So maybe the application is, parent, pull back and wait on God without judgment, without pushing, without pressure, without scheming, without, maybe hardest of all, without commentary. Learn to wait on God in your child's life. Because the truth is, the truth is, until we learn to wait on God, all we have is our scheming and the consequences. <laughs>